0: This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones.
1: There are multiple reasons that people might buy a watch. One is the whole status field good factor we've touched upon, but also the sort of memento side of it as well. It's a great way to mark time. For example, I took a watch last night from um, 1972, quite a cult watch. It's a, a red Submariner Rolex and it would be a perfect 50th for someone this year. Do you know what I mean? And the other thing is the whole investment thing. And I think that that's, of course it's real. However, I also think that it's used as a huge justification for clients to kind of go, it's a great investment, I can buy that and put it. In
0: and itself. sentimentality when people get given these things Very sure. important moments. Well,
1: look what my dad's watch it to me, mm. you know, for
0: sure. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Today we're talking about something at the intersection of jewellery, technology and fashion. The watch. One of the few pieces of jewellery that performs a function. But is that function now updated? Do we need a watch when time is all around us on our computers, iPhones? And it's a kind of odd thought that as time has speeded up, everything is open 24-7, people are busier than ever in jobs, with appointments, leisure activities that the watch might be coming obsolete. And yet, here's the paradox, the collectability of watches and the prices at auction have gone crazy. Case in point, Paul Newman's Rolex Daytona, which fetched $17 million at auction. So, we want to investigate this paradox, and I am delighted that we have today as our guest, the watch guru, Tom Bolt, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Privileged. I described Tom in vogue many years ago as the watch dealer to the stars, but he's much more than that. He's the co-author of the ultimate Rolex Daytona book. His vintage watch dealing prowess has featured on programmes like Time Machines for CNBC, Millionaire's Gift Guide for the BBC and Four Rooms for Channel 4. So there's no one better to shine a light on watches for us today. So Tom, first question I have to ask you: mm-hmm. What watch have you got on today?
1: Um, today I have on a Jaeger LeCoultre mm-hmm. in stainless steel, uh, a member OX purely because obviously I'm a bit of a sort of marked man doing what I do. So I have to wear something relatively humble, but also of good enough quality that I don't feel like a cad, as it were, doing what I do.
0: How many watches do you have a choice from every morning? A lot. Like, what, 100? Well,
1: every morning. No, I don't keep them all by my bedside, <laughs> sadly. But um, I mean, in stock? Yeah. Oh, like hundreds and hundreds.
0: Hundreds. And, and you just take your pick. What do you, you feel know, like.
1: Watches, you know, just now when you were sort of giving your prelim about, you know, is a watch necessary in today's world? No, it's not. In fact, it's kind of daft, really. But I think what watches are, I think that watches go back, they tap into something within our childhood. They tap into that sort of time that we're around the Christmas tree or whatever it is, and you're waiting for your present and your toy, be it a a kind of evil Knievel toy on its bike or whatever. It's about toys. I mean, watches are kind of like big boys' toys. And I think that it takes us back to kind of that period of time, which is why I think that watches tap into something particularly... uh, probably going to get my ass kicked for saying this because I should be including ladies in this but in my experience it tends to be fellas that are just more obsessed about watches than ladies well
0: actually that was something I was going to ask you because what I'm wearing today is a Ralph Lauren stirrup watch because Mm -hmm. I (laughs) subscribe to the fact that if I'm going to wear a watch it's got to look like a bracelet because I don't really as we say don't need it to tell the time so I want it to look decorative Mm -hmm. I feel that of any piece of jewelry watches are gender specific and all jewelry now i would describe as genderless you know we have timothy chalamet on the cover of vogue with pearls i mean at a dolce and gabbana party last night the guys outstripped the girls in terms of what they were wearing but watches as mm-hmm. you said it's very gender specific
1: it is although i totally agree with you that now watches are go back 5 10 15 years it was all about Guys wore big watches and then you had Elle, Elle McPherson, sort of like the first public person probably to wear like a big gents watch being the gold Daytona, which I sold Elle actually. Mm-hmm. And then bought back from her sometime later and stupidly sold it. It's quite an iconic watch. It's always been like, you know, big, heavy watches for fellas. And now it's that, that with Pharrell, for example. Pharrell wears a ladies Richard Mill.
0: Because he wants a smaller watch on his wrist?
1: I just think it's because he's, excuse my language, because he's fucking cool. <laughs> you know, and he kind of gets it. And, and often you have to do the opposite to the trend to be cool. He is cool. So, I mean, he could strap a banana to his wrist and still be cool, I think. But I think he just gets it that actually we're starting to sort of like recede as far as our kind of fashion size demands as a, as a fella. And so he's seen that early and gone, do you know what, let's really fast forward that or fast reverse that. Like the Cartier crash, for example, the Cartier crash, which I was very, very lucky t- to have bought I've always wanted a, a Le Cartier London crash and I bought one uh, a couple of years ago just before they kind of went bananas. Pure luck, not foresight. And, um, you know, a, a rapper started wearing a Cartier crash, which is the complete opposite. Again, it's like, what a tiny little Cartier crash that really is feminine enough in its own right, never mind its size and stuff. And crashes have gone bananas. Listen, people say I've been wearing unusual watches, bucking the trend for many, many years. And I'm not trying to big myself up here. But, you know, but I have been. I, I remember buying the Sultan of Amman's Daytona 20, over 20 years ago when you couldn't give a diamond watch away. People were going, what are you buying that for? You've got to try and got to take the diamond bezel off. You've got to dismantle the dial. You've got to find a new face for it. Why are you buying that? And it was three times the price of a normal Daytona. I think it was like, let's say, two, three times the price of a, of a normal Daytona. And, you know, fast forward and I sold it for like, you know, 50 times the price I paid for it. Because suddenly, vintage diamond watches became cool. But what it comes down to is it comes down to a confidence thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. if someone feels confident and, let's say, exudes kind of like confidence wearing a certain type of watch, then I think that type of watch can suddenly seem cool. It's all about what you feel the style good. of the
0: person. Yeah. So, did Elle McPherson come to you deliberately to get a large men's watch to make a statement?
1: Um, do you know what? I'm gonna, I can't remember whether Elle, Elle's bought a few watches from me, um, but I can't remember whether she bought her first Gold Day Turner from me. I know that I bought it from her, eventually, I bought it back mm. from her, but I think when everybody started, was quite cool, and when everybody was sort of like starting to rock the kind of the big Daytona look. Elle thought, you know what, not for me now. And kind of changed it up. You know what I mean? So I can't remember that I sold her mm. her first Gold Daytona But So it's a it.
0: statement. She comes to find a, to make a new statement. No, I think so she comes.
1: No, but, but I don't, that makes, I think individuals I think seem a bit shallow because it's like they're doing it to make a statement I think if you just feel it and you get it you just feel it and you get it right you just do what you I wouldn't feel comfortable wearing what somebody else is wearing not because I want to buck the trend and make a statement because I just wouldn't feel comfortable being a sheep Mm -hmm. so I want to wear something that kind of reflects me and, you know, for good or for bad, you know, people say saying, "Mom might either love me or hate me, that's fine. I, either get, you know, I, I just kind of don't feel comfortable wearing what is the norm, because I don't feel I am.
0: It's like I wear jewellery, and I want to wear jewellery that people can't quite identify, and they want to know what it is. And that's our job, it's, mm-hmm. it's what we both do. But let's scroll back a minute, because... How did you first get <clears throat> into watches?
1: I had a, um, a kind of pretty eclectic, mixed-up crazy childhood.
0: Because you were the son of two very creative people.
1: Mm, I don't know if we can say that's why. I think that certainly... I'll just
0: tell people here, because they yeah. uh, they may not know, that Tom is the mm. son of double Oscar-winning screenwriter Robert Bolt. And your mother is the British Actress Academy Award nominee Sarah Miles. Correct. So you probably travelled a lot in your childhood with both of your parents.
1: So I lived in, um, I think it's 18 different houses, went to 12 different schools by the time I was about, I think it's 13 or 14. They split up when I was young and they kind of, they moved around a lot. So what I had to learn from a very, what I had to learn, what I probably involuntarily learned as a kid was... Two things. One, had to read people because I never knew what was going to happen from one day to the next. My parents could say to me, oh, by the way, you're going to live with your mum now or whatever. It was kind of like a bit all over the place. And so that's, I guess, what makes me a half decent salesman today is because I understand people and kind of, you know, reading people. But also what gave me happiness as a kid was things, be it like a, a, a toy gun, be it a, a whatever. Just things made me feel better. I remember being in kind of one of my endless boarding schools and, you know, like tuck day would come. Man, let me tell you, that refresher or that, you know, blackjack kind of like chew for me, it was like, it was the holy grail, man. It was like, they're my things, you know, things made I me mean, feel better, which is probably why I'm again a half decent watch dealer today, is because, you know, one, I love watches, but it's kind of given me a focus and a kind of a direction. But nevertheless, it kind of meant that I'm, you know, I'm sort of, I was a drug addict and an alcoholic as a kid, and I'm now 36 years clean and sober. I think that the direction that watches gave me as a kid has kind of aided to that hugely. That's a very long-winded answer. Let me quickly tell you how I got into watches, which was I was working in a warehouse, cleaning houses. I was a school janitor, believe it or not, for, for a while, thinking, well, you know, <laughs> this has turned out well. Do you know what I mean? And um what it kind of goes back to is when I was about nine years old, dad picked me up from school and... I'd seen Live and Let Die, where Roger Moore frees himself from the impending doom of the shark tank below with the bezel that spun on his Rolex Submarine and through the rope. Um, and I became obsessed about having to have a watch with a bezel that turned on it. And Dad picked me up from school. And as we were driving through Richmond Park to go home, I noticed that mine said Timex on it. <laughs> and his said Rolex on it. I thought, hmm, that's a bit sort of double take, thinking, oh, what's that one? But it didn't really matter because his didn't have a bezel that turned, so mine was better. Do you know what I mean? And um, and so that was what kind of sowed the seed. I guess about fifteen years later, I ended up buying the live-and-let-die actual watch from Christie's. It was a prop, and I turned it into a functioning watch. God rest his soul, took Roger Moore out for lunch, um, and he signed the back of the watch for me and stuff. And yeah, and yeah, so yeah. That's so so nice.
0: And who bought it?
1: um, I did possibly one of the worst deals in my life. I basically, I traded it for another kind of obsession of mine, I like cars, um, for a 1967 Shelby GT500 Mustang. If you know the film Gone in 60 Seconds with Nicolas Cage, It was his nemesis, Eleanor. Mm -hmm. Um, I traded it for Eleanor. No sooner had I had the car, than the engine just went bang and gave out. So basically, I got about 50 grand for the watch, I think. And I think Rolex just bought it recently for about quarter of a million quid or something. So that was... (laughs) I should really be taking to the sort of trading standards, shouldn't I? (laughs) Calling myself watch guru, do you know what I mean, after a deal like that? But But um,
0: I read somewhere that the first things that you started trading, where you cut your teeth on dealing, were mangoes.
1: Okay, so I'd already started doing drugs. I was about... 10, 11 in, in, in L.A., um, smoking lots of weed and stuff. And so when I then left L.A., having got into weed, I suddenly found myself sort of shipwrecked on this island called Bora Bora. Because so I'd gone to live with Dad, and Dad was rewriting Mutiny on the Bounty. And so addiction, the the chosen, let's say, tool, the chosen vice of our addictive nature, I think is relatively... Immaterial. 99% of addiction is why we use whatever it is that we're using in the way that we do. 1% is the actual item. So, what I did is I went from LA to Bora Bora and I suddenly became obsessed with mangoes. Mangoes were suddenly my life. But I could never get the right mangoes because obviously the kind of professional pickers were getting the mangoes early and stuff. So, you know. And I then fell in love with Rafaela De Laurentiis, Dino De Laurentiis' daughter. Now, I was, I think, 10 or 11. She was about 16, so it was never going to happen, right? But I was just obsessed with this girl. And I tattooed into my arm with Indian ink RT because I thought her name was Raphael De I'm (laughs) dyslexic, not Raphael De Anyway, so I was very proud of my tattoo. And I was at school in in a grass hut, literally for Tahitian kids, French-speaking. I'm dyslexic anyway, so I mean, you know, what chance have I got, really? But... A couple of the kids there showed great interest in my tattoos. So I thought, OK, that's a deal to be done here. So I set up a little business. I say little business. It was a three-day business, which was tattoos for mangoes. Honestly, I at the end of three days, I was like Pablo fucking Escobar. Right? <laughs> I had so many... You know these stories about Pablo burning cash to stay warm, right? Honestly, if you could have burnt mangoes, that's clear. I had them everywhere. I'd forgotten where they were. I was drawing maps of where I put them, thinking that everybody would steal them. And all these Tahitian kids were thinking, well, whatever, man, we don't care. Do you know what I mean? I like, yeah, no, you're after my mangoes. And they didn't give a shit, right? Just, I was obsessed about mangoes. So what happened was basically, I had all these mangoes everywhere. Two days later, two of the kids turned up to school that I tattooed and they had blood poisoning and their arms had gone like the elephant man. What um,
0: were you doing it with a compass?
1: I was doing it with a needle needle. and Indian ink. Okay,
0: so that was the early dealing experience. Then you're going into acting, following your mother into acting, and get a part in the name of the rose?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wince a little bit at that, because, look, I I was just... I was a mess, right? And so it wasn't like, you know what, I'm going to be an actor. I never decided anything for myself in my life. I was just, like, on this kind of wave of whatever emotion and whatever desire kind of took me that I tried to get, right? Um, So Mum, at this point, came back from America... And I'd been kicked out of another school. And so mum then kind of, who'd come up at that time, said, look, we know he can act. Let's um, send him to drama school. So I went to arts educational, another school that I got after Leo, of course. And I got an agent. I got mum's agent, not because I was a brilliant actor, but because mum was mum and she got me an agent. And I got the lead in a few things. I got a lead in a thing called Company of Wolves. Um, Marina Martin was my agent. She was amazing, man. What an agent she was. Wow. I mean, how you can get... Honestly, I was not trained. And I was a mess. So to get me... Those parts and that stuff was like wow, but I got the the the, the uh, leading the company of wolves, and then they couldn't get my green cards. And like three weeks before filming, so that was shelved. and They got someone else, and then I hit it up with the director um, of the film The Name of the Rose. An audition did really well. We got flown out to Paris. Withdrawing from heroin, I wandered the streets of Paris. I actually remember it's kind of rock bottom for me. This I wandered the streets of Paris looking to score, couldn't, it was raining, didn't sleep all night, got picked up on this kind of big posh limo in the morning. I was just a mess. I was just a total mess. And the director was just like, mate, I don't know what to say. Anyway, so I was I was immediately transferred back to sort of to London.
0: And they got Christian Slater took that role. I think
1: every time I see him now, and I feel like I have this slight twitch. It's like me. Um, But you know what, though? £60,000 is what I was getting for it. And um, I think it would have killed me. Mm. I think it would have killed me, so you know. Things
0: work out, and you went on to Mm -mm. focus on watches.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So, what was the first watch deal?
1: So, I basically I, I, I suddenly got this bee in my bonnet about thinking, right, when you're a man, you have a Rolex. So, I saved up from my kind of night shifts and my cleaning jobs. And um, I bought a secondhand Air King for 300 pounds. A Rolex Air King. A big bill came in that I couldn't afford to pay. And I saw an advert in Chiswick for watches sold. And I met an Italian gentleman who came up to meet me to buy this watch and he gave me 335 pounds. I made 35 quid. But more importantly, he introduced me to this world of watches. And I was just like, wow. And being kind of a bit of a mover as a kid and kind of a hustler, I found a way to get Loot magazine and Exchange and Mark early, before they came out. And so I used to get these magazines and I'd call this Italian guy and say, hey, listen, someone's advertising this day after tomorrow, or whatever, if we try and get it early, whatever. And we would go and buy this stuff, this Italian dude and myself, and I'd get like a little cut. But my cuts got smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was like, hmm. Um, and because I had sort of robbed coots when I was a kid, which is why I got sent to, to jail, I... Couldn't open up a bank account. So I decided these cuts were just diminishing to such a huge, rapid state that I could no longer function with these deals that this Italian gentleman was offering me. That I borrowed £1,500 off a loan shark at 10% a month and kind of never looked back, really. That was kind of it. I paid him back within six months and just started dealing in watches. i got to say, though, it, it was at a time when, you know, you'd have to be pretty inept to not... Making Success out of watch game at that time, I and mean, it was ripe for the picking, it really was.
0: Well, it was just before this kind of whole uh, crest of the wave was coming, wasn't it? it was about,
1: yeah, and what it was is that modern watches were at such a dull, kind of unimaginative kind of state of play, really, that the only watches that excited me were vintage watches. So I was able to learn about vintage watches, and make the odd mistake, etc., um, at a time when, you know, you wouldn't lose your shirt to get into them so a watch then that was let's say a grand 1500 quid is probably like you know 50,000 quid now a lot of them so it stops a lot of people getting into business now so I got lucky for the timing wise of it and again my addictive nature just kind of went sort of full steam ahead you know and then I got a lucky break at the watch gallery they called me up and said, hey, Prince Ernst of Hanover is looking to sort of shift some stock. And They were very sweet, sweet to me, too. They were very kind to me. They like, I kind of really felt like, oh, my God, like, you know, like I was really punching above my weight going to the watch gallery, you know. And that was the 80s. Yeah. Uh, maybe late 80s, early, very early 90s, yeah. Mm-hmm. They were so sweet to me. They were like, yeah, listen. And I said, Look, but I can't afford to, like, just give you lumps of 20 grand or whatever. No, no, it's OK. A bit at a time and whatever. They were just very kind to me. Um, that was a big leg up. And then I met this lovely lady who came to the watch gallery. And she said, hey, I want to do an article on you. And I was like, on oh, me, really? I was like, yeah. And she was like, yeah. And I said, oh, OK. And this lady was called Carol Walton. It's true. That, you know that
0: what? that long ago, was it, that I wrote <laughs> this story? You
1: you're not that old. It can't be. It must be somebody else. Um, and, you know, but it, I, I, I want to go back on this because throughout one's, I think, well, certainly throughout my career, there are certain things that have happened, right, certain, be it publicity, be it deals, be it things that have happened that kind of elevate you to a slightly different level. And f- for sure, for me, you were the first major step that i took that article was the first major step where i started to sort of believe actually you know what maybe i kind of am all right maybe actually do you know what i mean i can kind of do this because you speak but this article about me being you know yes the son of x and y fine but you know sort of like you know watch dealer to the stars i mean i had a couple of like names i was kind of like you know selling to and stuff but just you you know it really kind of like a helped indicate who i was to me i was like oh yeah actually maybe i'm quite a good watch dealer and B, made other people think, oh, wow, he's a good watch dealer. So, you know, so for the, uh, to, to, so always, 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 I will be hugely indebted to you for sort of, you know, for that article.
0: Well, thank you for taking part in it and coming today.
1: I do remember, though, <laughs> I was I, I put a lot of trust in you because the photograph was of like me wearing this Oliver Twist jacket and having pinned lots of watches to the <laughs> yes. inside of my jacket. and I was a bit like, mm, <laughs> hang on. Am I gonna be like, you know, a laughing stock here, whatever? And it wasn't, it was great, it was cool, and it was great. So, yeah, thank you.
0: But I want to go back for a minute because when we talked about the the boy the toys for boys mm-hmm. part of um, mm-hmm. watches, mm-hmm. it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because the first wristwatch was actually made for a woman and they became associated early on, sort of late 19th century, with female ornamentation, whilst the men hung on to their pocket watches. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Breguet made one in about 1810. Can I just say that
1: I think that, you know, so many watch companies fight over this accolade. Yes. Cartier, Breguet, do you know what I mean? I think it is a little bit of a... It's a bit like the first chronograph. Who was it? Was it Graham? Do you know what I mean? I think it's a little bit subjective.
0: My research, Yeah, I think Breguet made one for the Queen of Naples in 1810. Patek Philippe in 1868 for the countess Koskowicz of hungary
1: okay.
0: who commissioned a little clock um, she wanted it to look like a central stone, sort of open a golden lid and show a on tiny her wrist. on her wrist I didn't tiny know that. working clock miniaturized timepiece and it was called a wristlet wristlet which I rather like they were
1: called wristlets yeah early watches were called wristlets yeah. wristlets yeah.
0: and that became a fashion coveted around and copied in europe and the men hung on to these heavy old pocket watches mm. that they put in their pockets, quite heavy. A bit like smartphones now, actually, if you shove a smartphone. So the pocket watch and the smartphone quite similar. And they thought this was a whim of ladies, a fashion. It would never last. And well, here we are. And it wasn't until the First World War that it became a key piece of technology during the war.
1: I, I, had to see, I hadn't heard that um, she had commissioned a watch as early as that. I'd always been under the sort of the illusion that the first wristwatches were basically pocket watches with soldered lugs, wire lugs, so that you could strap them to your wrist. Um, And I've had a few of those over the years. Um, Were those used during the First World War? Some of them, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, but even earlier than that, some of them.
0: And then in the war, like the Burberry trench Mm coat, which was devised because, obviously, in the terrible trenches and Flanders, they needed a waterproof garment and something that, it was breathable, waterproof. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Burberry invented gabardine for that. Mm-hmm. So the trench coat came out of that. And, and the sort of trench watch, because mm. they needed synchronisation, they needed to know. Mm-hmm. Taking a pocket watch out was a hindrance to open it
1: up, wind and, it up. And do you know the bizarre thing about this, right? Is that if you look at some of these early trench watches, by even sort of like, you know, sort of renowned revered brands such as Rolex, they're worth so little. You've got sort of historical early trench watches by companies that are worth a couple of grand, whatever. The whole You think
0: what that trench watch survived and lived through and
1: witnessed. Exactly. But
0: I read that in the officer's handbook for the front line during Mm -hmm. the war, the knowledge for war, Mm -hmm. it had 40 items soldiers needed for their kit. And first was a luminous watch with unbreakable glass and that came even before a first aid kit or boots or anything like that. So I guess it was at that moment that the idea of watches sort of pivoted from being a female ornamentation to being a men's... Necessity. ...survival sure. necessity. Yeah. And the roles reversed. And they probably came back from the war... And there were those years of women didn't need to know the time because they didn't have important lives or things to go to. <laughs> and you get the cadet. So basically,
1: the fellas knit the wristwatch of the ladies. <laughs> they, Shocking, sh-
0: they did, and they and we had to sort of have little things that you glanced at the time discreetly because it would be awfully rude for anyone to think that you had another appointment or something to get to. Quite right. And I suppose the Kadena, the Van and Pels, is exactly that. It's a beautiful gold bracelet with a tiny dial that's so only, yeah. only visible to the person who's wearing it. Mm. I love that watch, but I guess it really was made for women who could just go out to dinner and didn't mm. need to know the time. And I guess... It became masculinised, the watch. And that's why I guess these watches have become so symbolic of maleness, ruggedness, bravery.
1: Affluence. Affluence.
0: So it goes from James Bond to the sort of banker, industrialist.
1: I also think that it's, you know, so much of life is about status, sadly, isn't it? I've heard it said that, you know, that one used to tell a man's standing by his shoes It soon became his watch.
0: So do men coming to you, are they looking to align themselves with something that speaks about them and their masculine prowess? Um, I think that...
1: okay. so there's two types of watch dealing. There's the person that wants the current status symbol which I'm probably not your dealer because I think that most current state symbols are often a bit naff. And there's the other type of, let's say, client or watch dealer that basically, see, to me, if someone comes to me and says, oh, I kind of want one of these, the first thing I do is sort of look at the individual and go, mm, okay. And if I think it's just not really them, I'll say, you sure? But what do you mean? I'm like, well... I'm not sure that's really going to be the watch for you. And I'll try and... Because I think watches are about people, right? And so often what people want... I guess it's the same thing as going to a tailor, right?
0: So you match them
1: up? I try to. If I think that that watch perhaps isn't really the watch that typifies them... I might try and take them down another avenue. Because often people think they want what they want because they don't know there's something else. And so what I'll hopefully do is introduce them to that something else that they also kind of buy into and go, actually, yeah, that kind of works. Do you have well,
0: lots of women coming to you for watches?
1: You know, sadly, not that many. Because ladies' watches, predominantly in the 1980s and 90s and early noughties, ladies' watches were courts, right? Most yes, ladies' watches,
0: mostly courts. I read so often that women were discovering discovering mechanical movements. I don't think they were. Or I think I was writing it, but it, it didn't really happen.
1: No, and I think that it's because... I think it's because predominantly ladies want wanted... I think it's changed a bit now. Jewellery, all the time. They weren't that interested in the, kind of the movement the wrist and whatever. The wrist, exactly.
0: But what are cool girls wearing? Are they still wearing
1: Rolexes? You say that. It's not about a brand. There's no brand that's cool. It's about... What Every brand has its model that's cool. Personally, if I see a lady today wearing a lady size watch, a Rolex, whatever, I'm like, no, that is cool. Because there's something so elegant about a lady's Rolex. You know, there's something... And, that, and by the way, that's one of the reasons why Rolex, I think, have been such a phenomenal success, obviously, is the fact that they have always made mechanical watches for ladies. Always.
0: And they're waterproof.
1: They've never made a quartz watch. Certainly for gents they have, but on the whole, 99% of their sales are mechanical watches for ladies. And I think that's great. And in fact, it's bizarre to me, because if you look at early 1920s princesses, obviously the ladies' version of the prince, you know, the workmanship in those is so far superior, because the wheels are so much smaller to that of the gents' version, which are much bigger. And yet they're worth such a little amount of money, as are the vintage Rolex Prince's for, for many, it's a fashion thing. You know? Dress watches, people don't really want dress watches anymore.
0: Ralph Lauren came into watchmaking pretty late in the day, mm-hmm. didn't he? Mm-hmm. I mean, he came to what fifteen years ago, something like that. I think
1: so. Uh, yeah. In fact, I remember him. He was talking to the show at SHH about.
0: Yeah, I went yeah. to dinner with him and his Is wife. Yes. Mm. Um, but I love this.
1: It's great. It's cool.
0: Mm. And so, would would men be interested in his I'd mechanical watch? I think that's really cool. You would wear my wristlet.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's really cool, uh, a chain bracelet on it. In fact, I've got, uh, in fact, Richard Mill have recently um, done a very sort of sem- similar vibe bracelet to that. Um, it's, a rich, it's, very, it's very clever, too, because that, that sort of classical tonneau-shaped form of Richard Mill. But then he's put this sort of Cuban bracelet on it, like a Cuban ID bracelet on it, which is completely at odds with the case, but it just works so well. So, yes, the stuff like that, I love that. I mean, oh, yeah. I think that's really cool. I'd wear that, if it fit me. I mean, it has to be platinum, darling, of course. <laughs> I
0: mean, mine's not. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're kind of novelties. There's That's the novelty thing that pulls people in every year. But is there anything left to do with a watch? When we think
1: the tourbillon's been that's there, for that's a nice thing. That's that's so but a tourbillon doesn't even work in a watch. And that's, another thing, that's the other completely daft thing about watches, right? A tourbillon's never going to work in a wristwatch.
0: So what do we need these complications for? We because don't. we
1: can. It's like saying, look, I've got... <laughs> I just took this ridiculous car in part exchange for a watch, a McLaren 720S Spider. It does, like, 0-16. to 16. It's, it's got a performance pack on it. It's like, like 2.2 seconds or 2.3 seconds. I mean, it's lunacy. It doesn't matter that I'll never do it. I know I can. And that's what It's It's, it's stupid, I know. It's like a Torbium a wristwatch, right? A Torbium... It's been designed for pocket watches because pocket watches are in one position and they can, to a relative degree, counteract the effect that gravity has on the balance. A wristwatch is moving all the time. So a tourbillon is about as much good as a chocolate table in the Bahamas. I mean, But, but you know what? doesn't matter because it's got one.
0: <laughs> but you can dive. People wear these watches that enable Taubian. you to dive. Taubians
1: that dive. And, I mean, dive watches. What
0: are you talking about? Everyone's wearing them who, who don't dive. They probably don't even swim.
1: I It gets worse than this, right? Listen, I love this, right? This is a subject I'm very afraid of because I constantly post about, by the way, at watchguru underscore is my Instagram. I constantly post, you know, even videos of myself diving expensive watches because my view is this, look. If watch companies are selling watches that are 100, 200, 300, half a million quid, right, if they can't even get it together to be waterproof in today's day and age when they can do make a watch do anything, then they don't deserve to be making decent watches. If Hans Billsdorf can make a waterproof watch in 1926, well, nearly 100 years later, if we can't make a waterproof watch today just because it has a complication inside, then don't. But you know what? Rolex now, even Rolex tell you it's not really waterproof. They all want to cover their asses. Yes, they say. They all know. want to cover their bases. You can have case a of the shower leakage.
0: in it, but not go swimming.
1: It's a Something sea dweller. Like mm. It's a Rolex sea dweller. The name, the clue is in the name. Have a shower, sir. But don't you know, because mm. they all want to protect themselves, right? Because so they don't want any damage to happen, etc. But it doesn't mm. matter. Again, most fellas don't go swimming in their watch. Honestly, most of my clients don't. I'm like, what are you doing? The greatest pleasure in life is to be standing on a boat or in a pool, whatever, and to dive into the ocean wearing, for me, it's a vintage gold sports watch. It's it's lovely. There's something wonderful about swimming and lovely watches. It's just, that's what they're for, right? They're for I like the old hublots. Yeah, I I prefer the original hublots to the...
0: They look like little portholes, didn't
1: they? They do. I love them. And, you know, they were huge in Spain. They had a kind of microcosm of desirability in Spain. No one out of Spain had heard of a hublot back in the 80s, 90s. Suddenly, out they come with the kind of story, but copycat AP, the big Ben. Mm. Suddenly, everybody's got a big
0: Ben. That That's P. Piguet for anyone listening with AP.
1: Odomar yes. Piguet is Royal
0: McKinsey estimate that the pre owned watch market will be worth 32 billion in 2025. Okay. eBay are selling a watch every eight seconds. Mm-hmm. And Knight Frank Luxury Investment Index published in March said that watches were equal best place to put your cash during the last quarter of 2021 because it had an average growth of 16%. But watch dealing can't be that easy. It can't always rise. So what are the caveats? What do you tell people to look out for when they're buying?
1: That's a great question for the times that we're in right now. I would estimate that watch dealers, pre-owned watch dealers, have doubled in numbers in the last two years, if not trebled, quadrupled in. Because ever since lockdown, and perhaps just prior to lockdown it was it was starting, premiums on watches just went bananas. I mean, you could literally buy a, let's say, a Patek, and let's take a basic Patek Nautilus, a Patek Nautilus for 28,000 quid, if we're lucky enough to be allocated one from the shop, at retail, and you can sell it for £120,000. You walk out the door and get nearly £100,000 profit on your watch. With Rolexes, you could get triple your money. So what happens is that, of course, all these so-called dealers, or flippers, so call them, come to the market and they go, wow. And they cozy up to all the, the kind of retailers, take them out for a bit of dinner, lunch, whatever, give them a quick bun, etc. Get their watches, walk out the shop and sell them for four times the price so of course that was never going to be sustainable because it's a false economy yes production slowed down in lockdown suddenly there was more desirability. people were at home bored i'll spend money etc so although it had already started it really gained momentum during lockdown and the whole thing just basically has unraveled in the last three months and i love it i love it because it kind of sorts the men out from the board you know another thing about watches which is very interesting right is boxes and papers when I first started dealing on watches, box and box were nice, but it wasn't the be-all and end-all, right? It was like, just a cardboard box and a paper. But the reason why papers and boxes have had such premiums and values added to them in the last 7 to 10 years is because most watch dealers haven't got a clue what they're meant to be looking for. They couldn't tell you what the hallmark should be on this watch or that watch or whatever, so that you can tell whether the watch is genuine or not. Hence, they feel so much better if it's got its original box and papers. So basically, no one really has had to have any knowledge as such to get into watches recently. Because you go into a shop, you buy it, it's worth a premium. Now suddenly it's over. And by the way, there are people hurting. I know people that have borrowed money at 25 and and up to 4% a month to get into the whole watch game. So you've got a lot of money. Mm. And suddenly the stock they're holding is worth half and they are in trouble. So it's very interesting times right now to see what's going to happen with watches. All this kind of like trendy sports stuff is kind of like on the way down. Uh, the premiums are on the way down. So we're kind of back to, like last night, I was with a client of mine, a Kuwaiti client of mine, who's one of the biggest collections in the world. And um, it was kind of back to old-school dealing. I took this complete, diverse collection of watches. I took some 1930s Panorays, some contemporary Pateks, and it's really back to kind of like base values and what stuff's worth, but knowing enough about everything to kind of like, you know, to sort of to piece it all together. It's great, I love it.
0: So three top tips for men or women Looking to buy a watch?
1: Come to me, come to me, come to me. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, these are tips. Um,
0: Trust your dealer.
1: Ah, if you're good at spotting decent people, yes. There's a lot of rogues out there.
0: Um, you know know so. the watch you want that you want to buy?
1: No, because often I think that's probably the wrong watch for that person. That sounds really arrogant. Who's a dealer to tell someone's wrong watch? What I mean is that I genuinely think that, look, a little, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, right? My first tip would be if you don't know a huge amount about wristwatches and you have a little humility about you, be open-minded. Be open-minded about what you think you want because there might just be something out there that you didn't know existed that might be cooler for you is the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say, and I have to be responsible, is be careful if you're of an addict. Most watch collectors are pretty addicted by nature. I use watch collectors in the term of, like, you know, people that got 10, 20, 30 watches. They're pretty obsessive characters, right? Which is why I tend to have done okay, because I kind of am a watch pusher. And so, you know, like, I used to have a, a thing on my website, which I should probably put back again, which was watches below, I think it was below £20,000, which was watch fiend. And watches above twenty thousand pounds as watch guru, and as you went down to the maximum price, it would then automatically click you up to watch guru. But a a red warning light would come up saying, "Warning: Watches are an addiction. (laughs) Do you really want to go to (laughs) this next level because it can lead to potential divorce, etc.?" And people sometimes buy them that they just probably shouldn't be at that time. So watch yourself because they are—they're a real. They tap into something. They're an addiction. Um, they're a buzz, right? If your dolphins go and oh, all this new watch and that and whatever. And be aware that there's no such thing as the perfect watch. And if ever you, if, if you're into your watches and running through your head or out of your mouth is, Oh, no, no, that's the one I wanted. I'm done now. I'm good. Sadly, it's not. Unless you are a droid or a robot, you're not done mm-hmm. because watches are about mood. Watches are about how you feel on any given Sunday. So if I'm down, if I'm depressed, I might want something to cheer me up, like a sort of outrageous kind of like, you know, diamond bit of bling. If I'm feeling kind of like confident and good in myself, I might want something that's quite like, you know, low-key and whatever. So it's about mood, right? So them am afraid, I probably shouldn't say this, but there is no nirvana. There is no perfect watch. It doesn't exist. You need a few
0: to express your I, Yeah, moods.
1: and you know what? And I think, and, and another thing I would say is, look, don't, I and mean, I shouldn't be saying this because it's probably... Yeah, you know, taking money away from us watch dealers who like to sell a watch. But you know, watches are about covering the bases of your potential different moods. Sometimes you might want to be a bit blingy. Sometimes you might want to be dressy. Sometimes you might want to be a bit rock and roll. And it's remembering that just because, and often the justification to buy another watch is to partly exchange the watches that you've got. Problem with that is that if you go to the dealer on any given day feeling that mood, at that time, those other watches might seem surplus to requirements, right? Because you want your new watch. Remember that the mood's going to change. And at some point you're going to go, man, I wish I had that watch. So try if you can and be restrained enough to cover the watches that you want for your moods, to cover a rounded collection. And then if you wish to kind of like swap in and out of each genre and upgrade each genre, but try and cover the basis for your moods, because that's kind of what it's about, really, I think.
0: And is there a technology that's coming, a new technology that will need for this century, that will become the must-have, like the tourbillon for this century. You
1: mean a complication? Yes. In my view, no, and I put myself in this bracket, no one normal, no one sane of mind, even keeled wears an expensive wristwatch. It's ridiculous, it's, it's insanity, okay? So it's about, it's, it's a perversion. It's a horological perversion, isn't it? To spend 50, 20, 10, 5, 100, a million, whatever on a watch. It's, it's wrong. Okay. We all love being a bit wrong, right? But it's wrong. So the reason why Richard Little have become so, like I sold a watch a couple of days ago, which is a ceramic AP, a white ceramic AP, and it's nearly 300,000 pounds, but it's like plastic. It looks, it looks like plastic, right? But it's so cool. It's like a kind of McDonald's toy. So it's now coming a full kind of circle in that. And if you look at Richard Mill now, they make a watch called an RM67, which is a time-only watch. It's posh plastic. It's their kind of NPT carbon, but it's posh plastic. And I sell them for 350,000 quid. And yet they are hundred just over 100 grand in the shots. And it's the perversion that people will go, oh, you know what? It's plastic, it has no complications. It kind of makes it even cooler. because, And it's not just a show-off thing, it's because there's something weird. Again, I think it goes back to this whole toy thing. Plastic toys, whatever. And I think that now, I think the new perversion is going to be, I think there's going to be completely plain timepieces. Piaget used to have a great advertisement. People talk about Patek's advertisement of, you know, you never really own a Patek, you hand it down, so it's great. But Piaget's advertisement used to be just a picture of a very simple, time-only watch and just the most expensive watch in the world. And I think that it's kind of going to come back to that. I think it's going to come down to simplicity and the ways that watch companies can inject huge amounts of justified expenditure on behalf of the purchaser into an ultimately just simple, time-only watch.
0: So we don't want our watch to make phone calls, answer emails, effectively be a computer. We don't want that. So that's it. Simplicity is the way forward.
1: I think uh, because it's all about... Watches are about the way they make people feel. And there's something kind of cool about a time-only, very simple watch that has a huge amount of money. It's grotesque, I grant you, especially in today's world of what's going on. But watches are. They are kind of, isn't it? If we're going to look at watches in the landscape of the world, it's pretty wrong, isn't it? Do you
0: think as men wear more jewellery, they'll dump their watches? Because they've traditionally worn watches as
1: their piece of jewellery. I mean, when I retire, they'll have to, won't they? Because there's no one... No. Um, uh, uh, do I think they will? No. I think men will, again, it's that mechanical thing. I think that men will always oh. find a way to kind of like want something mechanical, I think, on, on their list. On their there's something very temporary, too, about a quartz a watch, I think, the battery. Do you know what I mean? There's something mm-hmm. that feels temporary about it. You know, I think in the same way the electric car kind of feels temporary because the battery wears down and then a mechanical car can keep on going for much longer. Mm-hmm. So I think there's just something temporary about a battery watch.
0: Also, you talked a lot about your addiction at the beginning mm-hmm. and watches and focusing <clears throat> into something very positive, And you're mm-hmm. using your watch dealing now for something incredibly positive. Can you just tell us a little about your charity?
1: I'd love to. Thank you for asking. Again, I sort of, I, I, I don't want to f- seem like I'm this sort of do good person. Although I don't know why I don't want to pick myself as that. But what happened was, as, as Pruzzi said, I was a drug addict. Uh, and I use sort of heroin intravenously. And I was about 20 years clean. I um, got a uh, sort of tap on the shoulder. started to feel quite unwell. And um, I had, then went to the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, well, you know, did you have your tests? I said, yeah, yeah, of course. And I um, had all my HIV tests, of course, when I was a kid, etc. It's getting very lighthearted, isn't it, for a watch chat. And um, she said, you had your hep C test, hepatitis C. And I was like, yes, yeah, of course. She said, but you couldn't have. And I said, why not? She said, well, because we didn't know that it existed back then. I just remember the colour going in my face and thinking, oh, God, And I had Hep C, so I had to have basically a form of chemo, chemical therapy. And I remember the thought process of it. I thought, wow. And I'd been champing it at dinner tables and talking about it from my kind of lowly soapbox whenever I could about how chronically rotten the whole prison system is when it comes to addiction. Over 50% of people in life being there for drug or alcohol-related crimes, yet they'd never heard of a program or a way to stop etc you know the whole and the revolving door of re-offending kind of like and stuff and um and so basically I, I got a chance to turn my life around because i as i said i sort of I, i'd um kind of defrauded coots and when i left i was facing up to three years and i got out of it because in effect my dad had enough money to send me to rehab and when i left i thought wow so i'm le- and even then i was weighing eight and a half stone i was truly i was physically just gone. I remember thinking, man, that is so unfair that all these guys that I've met, I get a chance to sort of turn my life around and they stay because the old man hasn't got enough money to send them to rehab and the judge hasn't taken pity on them. You know, and what I learned when I was in my brief incarceration, what I learned about how the it world it's just so rotten, so... I um, panicked. I thought, oh my God, my thing wasn't I'm gonna die and leave behind my five-year-old son. My thing was, what have I done? What are people gonna say about me? And it wasn't even, I'm not egotistical enough to think that, or, are, or it wasn't about what, what, what am I going to think about me to check out this world, should it happen? Having what, what, done what? Oh yeah, didn't he turn his life around with his amazing cars and lifestyles and houses? Who cares? Me and millions of others, do you know what I mean? So I started this charity with Steps to Recovery that integrates addicts from prison into society, gives them uh, three months free rehab, we don't do prison pickups and stuff. And in fact, we've just moved from Hackney to Ladbroke Grove. This ten-bedroom place, although I've had calls every night because the place is leaking, um, which is a nightmare. And um, yeah, and we kind of we we got the highest award you can get given at Westminster um, for community awards, the CSJ award. Congratulations. Thank you. Fantastic.
0: Great. And the Princess of Wales came.
1: The Princess of Wales came to the dude that we had in P. Dilly. But and she's very,
0: very vocal about street. this subject. Which this
1: is street. absolutely phenomenal, and I mm-hmm. applaud her for it. And
0: fantastic work you're doing.
1: Steps Stepstorecovery.org.uk
0: Stepstorecovery.org. Okay. Anyone wants to donate?
1: Please, please, please.
0: Last question. Do you still have your father's Rolex that started it all?
1: Mm, that made me a bit emotional. Um the answer is it's in the family. What happened was I I had Dad's watch, which was an air king, air king date, very humble Air King date. Classy fella, my dad not like me, Mr. Bling. So I got Dad's watch when he passed away, and I had it on my son's twenty first. Um I had it engraved with my dad's name. Watches, so they tap into something with people? Yeah. My dad's name my name mm-hmm. and I'm a son it. Robert Bolt Tom Bolt Billy Bolt and he cherishes it and he loves it it was great yeah.
0: thank you so much for sharing all these stories with us we are look at our watches in a completely different light from now well, on and also thank
1: you for the education <laughs> and the spotting up because you had me floundering a bit like oh yes uh, ladies were the first person to wear it so
0: thank you so much for joining us Tom. No, thank
1: you cheers
0: Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts and share it any way you can. Please subscribe to the podcast feed. We're on any of the platforms where you find your podcasts and we like nothing better than a rating and a comment and a star if you feel so inclined. (laughs) And please join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. We are doing a deep dive into the life and work of one of the 20th century's greatest jewelry designers, Fulco di de the Sicilian nobleman who went to New York, who designed the Maltese cuff, one of the most iconic pieces of jewelry for Coco Chanel, and so much more. And we will be talking about that next week, so I really hope you can join us. I want to thank Fooley Gemstones, our sponsors. If you'd like to know more about them, they're on FooleyGemstones.com. So thank you for listening. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Walton.